Authenticity is a common topic in today's business world. But what does this mean to you? Do you feel free to be exactly who you are within your work and life? I'd like to introduce you to Francisco Mafuz. He's the author of the book Bear, a guide to brutally honest public speaking, and he provides coaching to individuals and international organizations on one of the things he loves most, public speaking. During our conversation, Francisco discussed the importance of authenticity, and not just in public speaking, but within our work as well. All the people that are, in a way, pretending to be someone different than, than they are, you have to think that all these people are, are performing you know, below capacity. There's no way that you, know, you can pretend to be whatever, someone who is, I don't know, maybe you're in sales or maybe you're in finance, maybe whatever, or a manager. And you, in every behavior you have to perform every single day is a performance. Even if you're very good at it, which is very unlikely, that's going to take a toll in, in the long term. In this episode, Francisco and I discuss the ins and outs of being brutally honest, the benefits of authenticity, and how being weird just might be the new normal. So, wondering how you can leverage your authenticity as you navigate your path towards success? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Francisco, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Tell us about Francisco. All right. So where to start from? I, I think from, from where, it's, where it's more interesting to start from is that, and perhaps what brought us here is that I'm one of those people, one of those very strange people that have never had an issue getting up and speaking. So when I was, when I was in school and the teacher asked someone to present in front of the class, I would do it. And then when the same thing happened at work, I was always happy to do that. And then I got into public speaking and I got into, you know, participating in competitions and all of that. And, and, and for some perhaps stupid reason, never connected the dots and, and said, okay, well, maybe I should make this my, my profession. And a lot of things changed last year in the beginning of the year. And then people kept asking me the same question throughout the years. And last time, last year, someone asked me, why don't you just speak professionally? And that decided to say, to say yes to that. And, and that got me on the journey that led to the book and led to, to everything else. And among other things, being more proactive on LinkedIn, which is how you and I connected originally. That's right. Yeah. So I, I got to say, of course, there's a few of us that are weird in the same way, right, that like to do public speaking. One of the things that I got to say to you, you've written a fantastic book about authenticity in public speaking. It's called Bear, Guide to Brutally Honest Public Speaking, which I was drawn to immediately because I tend to be very honest in my speaking as well. So uh, kudos to you on that. But kind of on that same point you were talking about, is feeling a little bit weird in the fact that you love getting in front of people um, and, and speaking to them. One of the things you mentioned in your book, I'm going to give you, I'm going to quote this. Here are some things people fear less than speaking in public. Kidnapping, snakes, hell, Satan, spiders, murder by someone you know, holy cow, demons, large volcanic eruptions, the apocalypse, zombies, ghosts, and last but not least, clowns. Well, it, I mean, it is true. It, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a cliche when you talk about public speaking that everybody loves quoting this thing that public speaking is more feared than death. And I don't know if this was ever true, 
but it's definitely not true now. So I actually went and found, well, it's not quite research, it's more a, a poll from a university that is on the references at the back, in the back of the book. And then they had a list of the 100 things Americans fear most. This is from 2018. And from, if I'm remembering correctly, public speaking was number 59 and death was 54. All the other stuff that's on the list you just read is well after public speaking and death, which is very strange to me. Right. But I guess that probably is one reason why you don't come across a lot of people that are very excited about public speaking like maybe you and I might be. I mean, it's fully understandable that people are scared about it. I, I've been doing this for years, and I still get all the physical sensation of being terrified, although I now understand it as excitement. But I have no issue with the idea that people are scared of public speaking. My issue is just how scared they are. And, and also just taking that as a reason to say, well, I'm scared, so I won't do it. Um, I think there's plenty of things you're scared about, and you're probably right to be scared about. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do them, you know, children being a very good example of that. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I found interesting about your book, beyond just the fact that you, you love public speaking the way you do, was the importance uh, that you place on connection. In relation to kind of what you've written here, um, certainly in relation to public speaking, it's critical to find that connection with the audience. And one way you mentioned in doing that is allowing them to see a little bit of themselves in you as a speaker. And I think that really kind of speaks to empathy and, and understanding. So what, do you, what are your thoughts? I mean, maybe even just in the context of this world we're living in, where we're all a little bit disconnected from one another. What are your thoughts around just human connection in, in general? I think it's one of the biggest ironies of growing up or growing older is that we seem to keep rediscovering the same things over and over. So it's a major secret that human connection is is one of the most important things for our well-being. You know, Maslow came out with his hierarchy of needs decades and decades ago. And we still today are rediscovering that that it is important to be close to people that you care for and that care for you. And I think that, unfortunately, it's a journey that we seem to have to take by ourselves, where you follow this supposedly true and tested path of you finish university, you get a job, and you start earning money, and then you start buying things, and then you, you get some of slightly more material success, and then you realize, okay, well, these things are not really making me happy. And then when you start looking into what is making you happy, you tend to come back to connection with with people that, that mean something to you. Um, and I think nowadays there's a movement, and you see this a lot more in, in, in some social media, like LinkedIn, for example, where people don't want to see the very successful person talking about the things they're very successful about. Um, there, there is no connection in that. We, we don't want role models. We want peers. And I think that you know, public speaking is, and storytelling are the areas that I tend to focus on, but it's very difficult to find any area of business, for example, where someone will tell you that having some type of connection with the client or the customer or your audience is not essential for their success. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see a lot of research about personal success being linked back to being authentic and being your true self as well. And one of the things, you know, you talk about this in the book, and I think we had talked about this a little in our previous conversation, the fact that people feel the need to present themselves very differently than who they are, and how important it is for us to be honest about not only you know, who we are and how we see the world, but also in what we're feeling about the world, good or bad. And I, and I wonder if like social media, us being on social media, putting this 
persona out in the world that isn't necessarily our true selves, what does that do, not even to us, but to our ability to appropriately connect with other people? I think that the, the, the reason that we, we, we are still, to some extent, stuck with the old model is because if you think about it, again, we, we, we have to go, keep coming back to evolution, but we evolved to, to behave in a certain way, and we evolved in smaller groups. In the smaller group, the chance that if you were a bit of a freak, you would find someone else that was like you was very small. So you had to conform and you had to have a behavior that was probably more generic to a certain extent. And before social media, there was a very similar situation. I mean, maybe everybody was as unique and as strange as they are now, but because there was no medium to find out about it, there was no way to connect with other people that might have had the same idiosyncrasies as you do, Everybody sort of pretended to be this normal between, you know, inverted quotes. And and I think that social media has, has changed that because social media has now allowed you to be however you are. And because you're reaching thousands of people, there's a very good chance that what perhaps was very strange before now is not so much anymore. And what that has done to or is going to do to society slowly but surely is that it's going to destroy this idea of normal and anyone that is too normal is going to start looking very strange because because no one really is like that. There are strange things, if you want to think of it as strange, about anyone. And, you know, now you have a way to express yourself as you are and plenty of people that will identify themselves with that. And that has to have some impact of what we tend to consider normal and, and acceptable and, and ordinary and, and extraordinary. That's a very interesting point. It, it might just be that we are starting to experience a shift away from painting a picture of ourselves that is not fully accurate to being very honest about who we are in order to find those connections with other people. And now starting to wonder a little bit if that is even more important in the current day uh, than it ever has been in the past. Certainly there's a lot more people focused on the points of authenticity and honesty and showing your flaws. and. I do hope that that kind of shows a better trend towards us being truly who we are, both on uh, social media, but also out in the world, allowing, giving us some kind of license in order to be free to be who we are. I think there's always going to be, of course, a boundary to that in relation to the things that people put on social media that may disconnect us. So um, this might be unkind words or, or, or so forth. But, hmm. but other than that, yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. There was just one other point to that. Sure. I mean, I don't know. I don't know you, but I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> all right. So I, I'm not good at all in pretending to be or pretending to like something I don't. And and I, you know, understandably so. I'm a lot less good at the things I don't enjoy. If you just think about all the people that have that are doing jobs they don't really feel authentic when doing all the people that are in a way pretending to be someone different than than they are you have to think that all these people are are performing you know below capacity there's no way that you know you can pretend to be whatever someone who is i don't know maybe you're in sales or maybe you're in finance maybe whatever or a big manager and you in and every behavior you have to perform every single day is a performance even if you're very good at it which is very unlikely that's going to take a toll in, in the long term. 
So it'd be very interesting if someone were to calculate how productive or less productive someone is when doing something they feel authentic doing. But I'd have to think the numbers would be would make a very con- consistent case for you know no one doing things they don't truly feel authentic in doing. Yeah, and there actually is data to back that up. I can put a link out for listeners uh, on an article that walks through some of that data. Authenticity ties very strongly with success. So um, I think a lot of people don't think of it that way because they feel like there might be a mold that they need to meet. And I'm a lot like you. When you said before, you're a terrible actor, I'm the same way. Uh, I'm a terrible liar. My husband knows it. My kids know it. I just can't do it well. But But I also feel like that's a strength of mine. So I've had people tell me that I'm authentic to a fault. I've had people tell me that I'm too honest. But at the end of the day, I, I feel I feel good about that. I feel um, like I get everything off my chest. I don't feel like I have to hold things in. And it really has led to a lot of very meaningful conversations, but also it develops trust, you know, it develops connection. Yeah. And, and it's just that the other thing about the not being a good actor, and this is something I talk about in the book, is you can tell when someone is not being honest. Yes. And you can tell when someone, even if they're not pretending to be uh, someone who they're not, if they're just not giving you any real life, if, if, if the things they're talking about are superficial, they might be honest, but they're superficial, then you, you're still going to lack that connection. So there's, there's the two sides of that. So one is you're pretending to be someone who you're not, and the other is you're just being very coy or, or hiding who you are, even if the things you're talking about or doing are honest, um, then you're still not going to connect. And, and, and if you don't connect, pick whatever area you want to look at, but any sort of interpersonal relationship, be it for business or personal, if you don't have the connection, then it just doesn't work. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I kind of want to go back to a, a quote that you've got in the book in your uh, Becoming Human chapter. You can only establish a meaningful connection with the audience when they see their imperfections mirrored in you. Yeah, and I don't know how far you've gotten into the book, but I, from I think chapter three onwards, I bang on that uh, quite a quite a bit because it, it's a very strange thing that people sometimes think you need to be generic or you need to talk about everyone so that people will will identify with. And and for public speaking, at least, it seems to be the, the complete opposite. If you, if you talk about anyone other than you, no one cares. Because in a way, perhaps it just feels like a cop-out, right? Why are you telling me about someone else? Right? You've got my ear, tell me about you. And I, again, I don't know if this is an evolutionary thing, because you would not genuinely be talking about something that you hadn't had first-hand experience with when you were sitting down around the fire sharing stories. You might have, the story might not have happened to you, but you would still have witnessed it because there would be, you know, or someone told you the story and you're passing it on. But, but in general, if you're not putting yourself in the narrative, then, then people just don't care. And, and if you're putting yourself in a narrative and you're making yourself to be a big person and super competent, I mean, no one wants to hear about that, right? Because the, you know, the bigger you make yourself feel, the smaller the audience will feel, or they just won't like you, which <laughs> is perhaps the more the more common response. Right. Well, I think that, yeah, that would be the kiss of death for public speaking if your audience 
just doesn't like you. (laughs) But I think what's really interesting, I think back the distinction between some of the things or some of the guidance I've heard about public speaking. So there's a lot of folks that will talk about public speakers shouldn't talk about themselves. But I think that distinction that you make is important. It's not really about inflating your ego. Like you shouldn't talk about yourself in a way that inflates your ego or makes you seem more important than the audience but rather talk about yourself in ways that exposes your vulnerabilities and your true self and allowing the audience not only to get to know you, but to connect with those pieces of yourself or those flaws that they can relate to. Perhaps I guess there are some people who say you shouldn't talk about yourself, but I I do not know of whom do you speak of. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've read that. I've read it. I've seen it in um, a lot of guidance and uh, Mm. I don't, I don't buy it, but I think maybe that was a real distinction is what you said, where it's really around making sure that you're not doing it in a way that will create disconnection between you and your audience. I I guess it depends. It depends on what type of public speaking we are talking about. I mean, the the public speaking... The public speaking that that I'm that I'm talking about in the main, you know, you have the sort of the low end of that, which is something like, you know, whatever public speaking you might have to do, or presentation you're doing at work, or maybe you're talking about things like Toastmasters. Uh, you know, the, for those who don't know, is uh, the largest public speaking organization in the world, all the way to things like TED. Right? I'm not sure necessarily that that this idea of you should talk about yourself applies to that extent. To something like a keynote speech because there's a lot of information that you're typically trying to impart on a keynote speech you know if you give me an hour i'm not going to talk about myself for an hour right but i will talk about myself it won't be for perhaps more than 10-15 minutes of the whole thing but i will be sharing stories and this knowledge i've gathered so you you have to be a character if you if you're completely out of the picture then you know it's just a strange arrangement of why we have this person and not some other person you know it has to be something that's coming through from you that justifies you being there other than just oh he or she talks well in public right and i think it would be a very strange thing i mean i've not seen that many speakers that manage to keep themselves completely out of it but there's good ways of doing it and bad ways of doing it Absolutely. Yeah. And I think was interesting kind of going back to that, I guess, technical aspects of a speech. And you mentioned Sir Ken Robinson's TEDx talk to schools kill creativity. It's one that I've seen. And if you haven't seen it, like for listeners, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to put a link out uh, in the notes for this episode so you can go check it out. But in that talk, he did not have a lot of, I guess he didn't check a lot of the boxes in in relation to technical aspects of his speech. However, it was powerful. And it really sent a very strong message. And I almost wonder if a lot of folks need to see that in order to understand the importance of telling stories in a way that are meaningful, but not necessarily having to focus on those technical aspects that people might overemphasize or think are are more important than they maybe are. That's a very strange speech for for it to be the the most watched of all time in TED, because (laughs) Because Clerken Robinson is obviously masterful at many things. I mean, he's he's got perfect comic timing. He's got a very good style for telling. I wouldn't necessarily call them stories; they're more anecdotes because you know they're just they're tiny little nuggets of real life that he inserts into his speech. And he tries, he does it in a very strange way because he ste- he uses a lot of humor. Most of the humor has no connection or almost no connection to his subject. But perhaps with a TED talk, you can do that because he spends maybe a third of his talk talking about things that are not actually his subject. But by the time he's done with most of that, you like him, 
you you've laughed with him you you're really excited for anything he's going to tell you next so he's clearly established credibility he's he established um, a connection so you know he's got the the ethos and the pathos there and then when he brings out the actual content of of the schools and the problem of the schools he's got a very strong foundation to build upon but it's a very difficult speech to try and emulate try to tell someone i would like you to do this like sir ken robinson (laughs) (laughs) i think you're gonna find some very strange speeches or talks coming out of that some things are not easy to teach and his style i think is a very difficult one to teach yeah, it definitely is very specific to him and in, in, in his personality. But maybe that's a lesson in itself, kind of a lesson in authenticity for him to go out and kind of have this very conversational style speech, like you said, that goes many different directions and injects a lot of interesting humor along the way that may or may not relate to the subject, but he kept people engaged. That audience, he had the audience. And mm. at the end, if you watch it to the end, of course, he had all of us too, and he makes his point very, very successfully. The, the other thing about Sir Ken Robinson, and, and not only Sir Ken Robinson, but I, I quote at least, uh, I mentioned at least one other speech from at least one as of the time of writing the 25 most watched talks in TED. And, and the other one I mentioned is Tim Urban, who is the guy who's famous for the stick figures and the blog Wait But Why. And, and like Sir Ken Robinson, a very different type of speech, but like Sir Ken Robinson, it's a speech that if you're looking for technical flaws, you find many. There's no shortage of things that he does or doesn't do that if you were being very strict about tech technique, you wouldn't pick him up on. Uh, for example, he uses, he uses what we call filler words. So he uses now to start many sentences. At some point, I realized that he was doing it. And then when I counted another three or four times after I noticed it. And none of that matters. Because what I think a lot of, a lot of public speaking advice goes into is they put delivery and technique at the same level, if not higher, than content and connection. And I think those speeches are very good examples of, you know, if you saw that speech in writing, it's still a very good speech. And if that's the case, then as long as you don't completely mess it up delivering it, then it will connect and and it will be meaningful. And to me, they prove that the content is significantly more important than the delivery. Uh, but not everybody realizes that and not everybody focuses on that when they talk about how to improve in public speaking. Absolutely. So now we're going to bring up a topic about a technology, a software made by Microsoft, and that would be PowerPoint. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And and, and again, it's it's a tricky one because, you know, we, we are in the speaking business and, you know, as much as I would like to think it's you can, you can't really do keynotes without PowerPoint or a keynote or whatever software you're using, right? Without slides. And you know, you don't need to you don't need to take this from me. I was listening to a podcast with Kendra Hall the other day, and Kendra Hall right now is probably the most famous person that talks about storytelling. And she said that she thought she was the storytelling gal. She could definitely do things without slides, and she found that it didn't work. Right. I mean, there's only so much information you can impart over an hour without giving people some type of, of visual cues to follow along. And, and it's true. So you, you do need to use it to some degree. Having said that, most people are not doing keynotes. Most people are doing very short presentations, even things like TED Talks. You know, for 16 minutes, 18 minutes, you can 100% do it without visuals if your presentation doesn't absolutely require visuals. 
And I think people have, for some reason, decided, well, this is a hammer. Now everything is going to look like a nail. And then every single presentation ends up with 30 slides. I've very rarely seen a presentation improved by slides by someone who's not been a professional speaker. And, and I think just getting rid of slides automatically improves most people's speeches. It is interesting. And I think one reason why is, you know, as, as a speaker, I know a lot of times the, you know, conferences or conference planners will ask for the slides. And so I think it's just a default assumption that you'll have slides, but you're right. I think a lot of the most powerful uh, talks, especially if you look at TED Talks, a lot of the most powerful ones have no slides. But now I'm thinking about kind of the world we're in today. So most conferences in 2020 have been moved um, virtual. So we have many virtual conferences happening now. We had a few that were, you know, that were happening in the past. Now many more. How would you deliver a powerful speech in a virtual environment without slides? I think you deliver it the same way you deliver a powerful speech in person without slides. The, the obvious answer is you tell stories, you use humor, you do all the things that make a, let's call it a, no, a live speech, powerful. The, I actually think that making it virtual is, is, makes it more important to not rely on slides either at all or to any great extent, because it's one thing being in the room and having someone on the stage in front of you. You know, you are going to get distracted. You might pay attention to other things. You might feel a temptation to look at your phone. But if you're doing, if you're sitting in front of a computer and there's a speaker on screen, then that speaker has a much harder job to grab and hold people's attention. So why use something that is known to, if poorly used, to lose people's attention? You know, and I've seen this happening. I've, I've seen quite a few of this happening in the last few weeks where people are doing, replacing their keynotes for a, a virtual keynote. And if you still need the slides, you're still going to use the slides. But I've seen an interesting example from David J.P. Phillips, who is sort of very well known in Europe, perhaps not so much in the US, but he had a big keynote for Salesforce. I mean, they couldn't do it. So what uh, David and his team did was they rented out a, a movie theater and they transmitted it live. But he got on stage and did the exact keynote he would have done on stage. But the difference is that there was no one in the audience. Wow. And I've heard that advice when you practice a keynote speak, you should have people in front of you. But I think in the current environment, it's an interesting thought to think about practicing without an audience in front of you. Mm. And the other thing is that sometimes people get very confused about what the technology forces us to do and what it doesn't force us to do. So slides, you know, just because they exist doesn't mean you need to use them. So, okay, so now you can't do your speaking in front of the audience. Why would you, you're still going to do it in front of a camera and the audience is going to see it. Why would you change it because the audience is not there? Now, take, take TED Talks again. So one of the things I've started doing as well this year is coaching TEDx speakers. And I had one, there was a TEDx uh, event in Valencia. And two hours before the event, the city hall called the organizers and told them to not open the doors. Right? Essentially, you can say, well, you, know, you have your license, you can do whatever you want, but no one is allowed to go into the venue. So they had the speakers trained and ready to go, and they had the venue and they had everything ready. So what did they do? They just filmed the speeches. And the speeches are going to go live at some point soon. And Perhaps you might not even be able to tell that it was done in front of an empty audience. And maybe those speeches are going to have, if, if they turn out to be popular, as many TED Talks become popular, it will make no difference that it was done you know, virtually 
and not you know in a live context so i don't necessarily see why we should automatically start thinking how does it change things other than people are not sitting next to me they're sitting behind the computer still need to grab their attention still need to connect still need to entertain them still need to inform them or persuade them none of that changes uh, and i don't think necessarily a lot more technology other than the camera is is necessary i think that I mean, based on kind of a lot of projections about conferences in the future and even meetings in the future, that more of them will happen virtually, more of them will happen at distance. Mm -hmm. There's some benefit to that, of course, that you'll be able to connect with people that you would not have been able to connect with before. Yeah. So there'll be broader access to that type of information, uh, broader access to, to potential learning. I think those are all positives. But if we think kind of forward into the future, this potential now, especially given the precedent that's being set in this this year in 2020, thinking forward about virt virtual conferences and even the prediction that someday many conferences will happen in a VR environment. So many of us might connect to a conference in a virtual environment and experience it through that means. What is your reaction to that? What are your thoughts about the, the fact that in the future, virtual conferences, it might be not even just more prevalent, but the way we connect to people uh, through virtual reality may become more of a norm. I think that a lot of events and a lot of conferences are going to go virtual. And I, and I think what's happening now is going to make a lot of companies realize that as nice as it is to get everybody together in the same room, there is not necessary justification for doing that to the degree that is currently done. So I think that, you know, like with remote work, it might encourage companies to view this very differently than than they were doing up until now, which is a good thing, because let's be honest, we, we, we shouldn't have people flying across the planet left, right and center, given the current environmental scenario. But I don't think you can ever completely replace human interaction. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about a conference or if we're talking about the way people interact. Tomorrow and Saturday, I already have a couple of nights in arranged with people where I'm going to, a group of friends of, of, of mine are all going to jump into a Zoom meeting and everybody's going to crack open the wine, and we're going to see how entertaining or not it is to spend two hours talking to each other over over the internet as we would in looking at each other as we would have done if the lockdown wasn't happening. I have a feeling that that would be fun enough, but it's because we already have the established relationships. I, I don't think our relationships will be affected. If we had to be in lockdown for a year and we only saw each other over this type of interaction, I think it would be fine. I don't think we're going to stop being friends because of it. But I think if you've never met people in real life, I, th I have a feeling that it can only go up to a certain point. I think there's always going to be that desire to, to meet in person. And sometimes maybe just meeting in person the one time might be all it takes. But I, I don't think that we've been doing it. Uh, we've been doing it this way unnecessarily for all this time. And all we've needed was to, to use the internet and virtual conferences to to have the same relationships. I, I think they are substantially different, but there's nothing to say you couldn't maintain and develop relationships online once they've established in person. But but I think the, the, the live version of it is always going to be something we're going to yearn for, regardless of how good technology gets. Right. That does kind of go back to the fact we cannot deny that we're human. Mm -hmm. 
And I think some of that in-person connection, I know that there's been some articles and I'll, I'll see if I can dig those up for listeners and put some links out because you're you're right. There definitely is a different level of connection with people you've known in person than people you've only met virtually. It's interesting. My daughter, she's in conferences with folks on her gymnastics team and she's loved them. But to your point, she knew all of those kids previously. So they had a blast being able to connect from home. I wonder how long that that novelty will last to mm. some extent, but loved connecting to um, her, her team virtually, loved connecting to, to her class. So they did a class uh, virtual conference yesterday, uh, which was a little chaotic. But the kids, I think, really enjoyed the fact they were able to connect. You just do wonder how long uh, they can kind of maintain that enjoyment before uh, they'll really kind of want to be in close proximity to one another. Yeah, I've got a three-year-old and a seven-week-old baby. The three-year-old now is, she has some of the things that she used to do in class, they're doing over Zoom. She has what they call, you know, it's a Montessori school. So they have a circle time in the morning and then they have some book reading in the afternoon and then we set it up and we put her in front of the computer and she's there. But you can clearly see it's not the same thing. I mean, she, she's mildly interested in it, but she gets distracted very easily. Mm-hmm. It's different for a teacher to keep the kids under control if they're just next to her. But because they can't do that over the conference, they, they have to mute the kids' microphones. Otherwise, everybody just talks over each other and just doesn't work. And that makes the kids very restless. So, you know... I, Maybe once you get to a certain age and, and, and you know people ideally, I think you can absolutely have a drink over the computer. And, and it might be a good thing because that we're going to be forced to do this now because I have so many people in Brazil, where I'm from originally, that I see once a year when I go there. And there's no real reason I couldn't occasionally do this kind of funny thing of having a glass of wine and talk for an hour while we look at each other on the camera. And, and again, I know that it's FaceTime, but FaceTime is a bit different, right? This is not you putting a computer on the desk and having five people together there talking. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit of a, a different arrangement. But, you know, I think, I think that you're right. We, we are human. We're going to remain human for the foreseeable future. And I think it's a, it's a fool's errand to try and, and pretend that we can think our way out of how we feel. I, I just don't think that that's, um, that's either feasible or a particularly good idea. Right. But I have to say, in the meantime, crack open your wine, enjoy your friends virtually, because I think there's a lot of benefit to that. I, I do think that's going to become more of a trend, but we do wonder you know, how long we maintain that before we really need to be around one another you know, more closely. The other thing I would think would be of great benefit to a lot of people once we come out of the other side of the situation is that we, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm I'm a particularly sort of social person. I'm very gregarious. I want to be out and see my friends every weekend if I can. But a lot of people are not like that. Right. A lot of people I know get stuck in their own ways. And then, you know, for example, when I go back home to Brazil, I see all my friends and they sometimes say that they're glad that I come over because that's the only time they see the rest of the group. And I said, but, but you live in the same city. I mean, you are 20 minutes from each other. How difficult can it be to occasionally find an hour or two to grab a beer or go out for dinner or whatever? And people just don't do it. And I think that now if we're forced to spend, I don't know, a few weeks for sure, maybe a few months, completely cut off from everyone else, we might just realize how much we actually miss other people that don't live in the same house as we do. And, um, and maybe we just value those relationships a little more. Yeah, if we need to learn something from this mass experiment, really, of human behavior that we're undergoing right now, 
if we come out on the other end, appreciating people more, that there's nothing wrong with that, and appreciating the connections we have with one another. Especially if we go forward into a world that becomes more and more virtual, uh, I believe those connections will become uh, really important to our well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one side of it is that the world is looks very much likely to be going more virtual. And the other side of it is, I think, something we, we, we touched on the very first time we talked, which is there is a very small but growing backlash against a lot of the technology that people spend a lot of time focusing on. Yeah. And I think that I don't know if this is going to happen because we're not, you know, we are not necessarily known for always doing things in our best interest. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised if 20 or 30 years down the line, people have realized that things like, you know, most types of social media are not something you really want to be spending as much time as people spend with these days. And there was some sort of return to, you know, the time when, like when we were growing up, the things just came in slowly and most people realized, had to choose between, well, but either I actually spend time with my friends or I do this other thing. And now a lot of people have gotten confused about what spending time with their friends means. And my hope is that when my daughters are older, because they're very young now, but when they are teenagers, that it started being uncool and, and clearly not the thing to be doing to spend as much time as people do these days on WhatsApp and Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is that they do. Right. TikTok. And, and actually just spend time with real physical people. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. And by the way, since I haven't said it yet, congratulations on the birth of your youngest child. Thanks. And so as a parent with a three-year-old and now an infant, when you think forward about the future of the way we interact with one another, what are the things that you think about? What what are the things that you're optimistic about? Social media is one that I'm optimistic that I I feel that I'll have less to worry about 15 years down the line than I do now. I I think I would be terrified if I had teenagers right now. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure I'll be terrified anyway. But I would be right. more terri- I'll be more terrified if that was also a big factor. But I think that there is a big this movement of realizing that the way we physically and emotionally evolved needs to be respected. This is something that is becoming more and more clear. And I think a lot of these things that now are sort of they're not edgy, but they are not mainstream. I think they will become mainstream over the next 10, 15 years. And that's one of the main things I'm optimistic about. I would like to think that we, <laughs> the, you know, ma- medicine and, and our understanding of how to keep ourselves healthy will improve as well over the next few years. And, you know, hopefully what's happening now is a big wake-up call. And the next time something like this comes along, which it will, particularly if it's something a lot nastier than this one, that we are better prepared for it. Because one of the things I've, I've concerned myself with since I've had children is this thought that with you know the environment being what it is and, I don't know, income inequality being what it is, that I'm not sure my children will have what I'd like to think of as a normal life. You know, maybe the, what they understand to be normal in 15, 20 years' time is very different than what we understand to be normal. Obviously, I thought about that too soon. because now now we're in the middle of a very, very, very strange world. But I don't think this is going to last. And my hope is that we're just better prepared as people and as countries to to deal with this type of stuff so that they can actually have whatever passes for a normal life when they get older. And I think it's moving in the right direction. You know, there was that Martin Luther King line, that the arc of the universe is long, 
but it bends towards justice. And I think the, the, you know, the arc of the future is very long, but it also bends towards humanity being slightly smarter and slightly better off in average than, than we have been. So I see no reason to think that this is going to change for when our children are grown-ups. And I think that you, you brought up a tremendously important point that we cannot lose in this moment. What do we learn from this experience? And how do we use that to influence the future of how we interact with one another, the future of technology, the future of our human experience, without letting those lessons be lost? Yeah, and, and I think how we put what's happening now into learning that actually helps us going forward. And now I have to bring it back to the other thing I talk about mostly these days, which is storytelling. You know, I think we are all, this is something, I, I put something online the other day about how we're definitely in the middle of history, but we also in the middle of writing perhaps the most incredible stories we will ever live. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to compare what we're living through to what the, the great wars were, but to a great extent, this is the biggest upheaval of normal life that anyone has ever seen in our generations. And perhaps we'll see for the next 40, 50 years. I sure hope it is. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can face this. And, and some people are, are already writing the, you know, wasted life story of how this was terrible, how you lost money, how you lost maybe a job, how you just wasted time and, and got nothing good out of it. And for a lot of people, I think this would be a, a critical moment. This would be a, a turning point because this could, if you play your cards right, improve the relationships we have with the people you're locked in with. It could be the chance, if you're not locked in with, with your family, to dedicate different projects that you just never found the time to do. It could just be a, a, a way to realize that you know human connection is, is very important, it's essential, and perhaps we don't give it the importance that it deserves. And I think... Once we get over this, we'll need to be telling a very good story about why it happened in the first place and what were the things that got us out of it. Because if we if we don't pay attention to the stories we tell about what's going on now, it's going to end up being a story about who's to blame and who screwed up and who didn't do the right thing. And those don't tend to be what motivate us to improve. That's a beautiful thought, a beautiful way to maybe end the episode. Francisco, thank you so much for joining me. His book is Bear, A Guide to Brutally Honest Public Speaking. It's Francisco Mafuz. Did I do that right? You did that perfectly. Well done. And I practiced. <laughs> Francisco, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to put the link to your book out in the notes for the episode. But thank you again for a great conversation. Thank you, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure. could weave together some of the great points that Francisco discussed into a brutally honest tapestry of sorts. Authenticity, honesty, human connection, and storytelling. These are certainly important to being successful at public speaking. However, the tapestry these create go beyond the stage. By applying these aspects into your work and life, you might find a bit more joy, a bit more fulfillment, and that you are one step closer towards your version of success. What makes you, well, you, that's valuable. I don't have to know you personally to say that. Your unique perspective and strengths are a piece of the puzzle that we're all working on to help shape the future. So, grab your tapestry 
and find the courage to use it to make a difference. And while you do that, go on, go help shape the future. To learn more about Francisco and his amazing book, Bear, A Guide to Brutally Honest Public Speaking, go to franciscomafuz.com. That's Francisco, M-A-H-F-U-Z, dot com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.